This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. My author today deals with an important subject, the title of which is Parents as Talent Developers, Essential Parenting Tools of Exceptional Parents, and one of the co-authors of this book and lead lead author is Dr. James Reed Campbell. Thank you, Dr. Campbell, for joining me today. That's my pleasure. This is a book of 154 pages. Share with my listeners a little of your expertise in this area. What is your background and how did this book get written? get into print actually i've written uh i've written a book in 2000 in uh, 1995 for american parents i've been in this area for 40 years uh, mm-hmm. more probably more and it's been my major area of research and uh in this book started in 2000 in the year 2000 between 2000 and 2002 and during that period of the, the american book had already come out in 1995 and we produced another book for taiwan in uh, 2000 and another one for mainland China in 2002. So this book, we had uh, three African-American women with uh, administrative positions, and we had another researcher who was working with Latino families on Long Island. And the, the women were all working in New York City. So the four individuals uh, went out and interviewed families with very high-achieving children, minority families with very high-achieving children. And we figured if they did it, maybe we could figure out what they did and write it down and get it out to other minority parents because there's been a huge uh, achievement gap between mm-hmm. African-Americans and Latinos. And we figured maybe this is a way we could, we could uh, solve the problem. We could give them advice on just what these excellent parents were doing. So it took us about 15 years, actually, wow. to turn the book out. So it took us a long time to finally do this. A lot of research, so yes. A lot of research. It's all primary research. Uh, it's very little that we made up. It's almost nothing we made up. Everything we have in this book comes directly. It's direct quotes, direct expressions from the minority communities. You can you can pick it up in the tenure, the tenor, the voice, the expressions, it's just uh, all in their words. And actually, we feel they're the authors of the book, not us. It's, it's a, beautiful, a beautiful approach. It's different than anything else I've seen in the marketplace. Uh, would you describe it that way yourself? It's very different, and we can't figure out why other researchers haven't followed our example, haven't done the same thing. It's such an obvious thing. They're in every minority community, there's always somebody doing well. Yes, And we could never figure out why they don't figure that. I've come to the conclusion that it's a lack of respect. They just don't respect the talent that's inherent in the minority community. That's what we feel is, is the problem. Incredible. You use the term kernels as, uh, as part, of your, uh, part of your descriptives. What does the term kernels deal with in your book? Well, kernels are seeds in the plant world, and a seed, uh, the, a kernel of corn will, will grow the next generation of corn. It's a technical term uh, coined in psychology, and we're using it that way, but it's a seed that a parent can use to help develop their child's talent. And we have 96 of them in the book. They're all direct, direct quotes in the book from minority parents, 
and we feel they can be used by parents. Every one of them can be used to help grow your child's talent. Was there anything in your discoveries that shocked you as a researcher or as a developer of this concept? What shocked us, actually, was that the educators over all of these years, over 30, 40 years, haven't really figured out a way how to motivate the African-American kids or the Latino kids who are just immigration, uh, just been immigrants. They haven't spent the time to figure out what motivates these children. And uh, they're very skeptical of our view that that uh, parents can make a big contribution. They, they want instead to blame poverty. Mm-hmm. Poverty is the big excuse, so they don't have to put in the effort, really, to uh, figure out just how to reach these people. And we feel there's a huge amount of talent being lost because the African-American community and the Latino, they both have huge uh, talents that can be developed and enrich our society. So by trying to keep them down, or I think it's inadvertent, I don't think they really want to keep the, uh, the minorities down, but by using this excuse, I think they, in fact, do keep the minority community down. It's not in our interest to keep the minority community down. They, they should be, they sh- the American school system should really be the, the beacon to get them out of poverty and get them into the, in the mainstream America. Absolutely agree with that. There are many teachers who uh, have that talent of developing talent in their, in their students. Right. Did you yeah. do any interviews of, uh, of, in, of educators uh, besides, uh, you know, the, the general uh, mainstream educators? We didn't really. We concentrated on the minority parent. We're all experienced. We have uh, the team, the four, of, the four members of the team, we have over 100 years of experience of working with minority families. So we felt we had the expertise to that. And we concentrated really on just picking up what we could from them that's not known in the community, that's not known in the educational community. So our work is really original in that sense. It's all primary research. Everything is primary. We, uh, in, in developing the book, too, we kept looking on the Internet and in magazines and in, in uh, interviews of other people who had done with successful minority parents. And we've been doing that for the last 10 years. We've been examining that. We found one in New Mexico, Rosa Chavez, who was an outstanding Latino parent. Five of her kids went to Harvard. Mm. And several of, of the colonels are her, her own words. And we, we figure there's a lot of wisdom in that. They face, all of, them, all of the minorities face, face prejudice in one way or another. And a lot of the, lot of the colonels show how to sidestep it and how to actually move ahead in the world. So I think that's, that's, all, that's what we're hoping to get across to minority communities. You've also discovered that, or, or have uh, suggested that moving to, uh, to maybe a better neighborhood or something of that nature does not necessarily ensure success with a student. No, no, no. that's a big, that's, uh, a lot of people actually believe that, but uh, in the, in the uh, minority communities, uh, a lot of people think if I move in a, in a wealthy neighborhood, everything will be all right, and it's not the case. They end up in the bottom. The children end up in the bottom of that level, and they don't end up being any better off. Uh, we have we really highlight that in the book. You can see that. That's a very important concept we found. Uh, 
And one of those kernels that is also mentioned is one that is kind of one of those uh, you think everybody would understand or embrace that is quality time simply put is when your child wants time that's uh, yeah. getting increasingly difficult with the um, media oh, age yeah. that we're in right, right now exactly sure yeah, okay. it's, it's it's very very true with uh, just about every level of society everybody is so busy they don't have time for the children and especially in the minority the minority community that has done well that are the doctors and lawyers and engineers and all they are so busy uh, that lots of times they're the ones who really don't put in the time, and you still have to put in a lot of time if you're if you're going to do a good job as, as a parent. I think being a parent is one of the most challenging things anybody will ever do. It's the most difficult job any person would ever want to have. I I absolutely agree, and I'm a grandparent uh, in my old age, and uh, looking back, I think of a lot of things I wish I had done differently. Now, in your kernels, in the, the kernels that are mentioned in your book, did you also take into consideration the what what is referred to as the nuclear fa- family? Was there any difference in single-parent households uh, as opposed to uh, traditional family? I tell you, most of the families that we interviewed were uh, two-parent families. We did find there was there's a, a number we did interview of outstanding single parents, but most of them are two-parent families, which uh, surprised us. We were surprised at mm. that. But uh, and if they weren't a two-family, if they weren't a two-parent family, they had an extended family. So, especially in the African American community, they would have a yes. grandmother living with them, hmm. or having a grandmother have access to the children, so that there was there was an uh, an extended family that really took the place. If if there was a single mother, there was a uh, an extended family that that counteracted that. So there was always somebody home. When the children got home, for instance, in elementary school, there was always somebody there hmm. to help monitor things, to keep things in shape. Absolutely. There, there are many instances of uh, single-parent families where the, uh, the, si- the siblings or the, the children uh, grow up to be very successful. So it's not always uh, just the, yeah, uh, the traditional right. family. Yeah. But it, it does happen yeah. that, uh, that a parent or a grandparent can be a, a tremendous influence on a child. You have also one of the kernels that I have used, I guess, in my uh, understanding of life is it's not where you come from, it's where you're going. A very, very uh, sage and and, and a perfectly put sentence and and concept, the book itself isn't that a beautiful isn't that a beautiful statement taken oh, absolutely from uh, from the minority community and it tells the whole story. That's I think so many people could benefit from that that kernel. That's mm-hmm. such a wise uh, wise view, really. And, and sometimes and some, sometimes difficult to uh, to assimilate in your yeah, own yeah. thinking process, you know. Uh, we often uh, spend our time looking in the rearview mirror, which I've been reminded, don't do that. But uh, it's uh, not where you come from, it's where you're going, I think, is a wonderful statement of uh, positive yeah. impact on uh, whoever is uh, I- internalizing that. Have there, has there been any negative pushback from uh, maybe folks in the communities that you you have highlighted in your book not really we've had three reviews so far professional reviews and they've all been outstanding so we've been we were surprised at that we figured we'd get some pushback but we haven't had any at all i think i think the school people would really be interested how do we it's a problem long long neglected and i think they should re-examine it again so that uh if there's 
if there's any way they can incorporate the things we have in our book, I think it'll help uh, the minority problems that they have in their schools with achievement. And I, I hope they're open to this. Uh, there are a lot of parent coordinators in schools in New York and in all the urban areas. And I think if they use if these individuals used our book, they would they would make progress. Would that describe your your ideal reader, an educator perhaps, or is this parental? Is it easy to read for moms and dads? I think moms and dads could read it, but we also have the whole back of the book is all for educators, uh, assuming that this book will be used in schools with, by parent coordinators with minority parents. So there's a whole section in the back. Also, there's a section in the back uh, for educators with footnotes and everything else, just to show we're we're really researchers. We're not. Uh, this isn't just opinion. Everything is based on research. So you see that in the back of the book. So I think the average American, uh, uh, the average minority parent can read the book very readily. It's uh, certainly readable. But they can see in the back there's stuff behind it. It's, uh, there's a lot of research behind it. What was the, the most challenging parent that you interviewed uh, for your book? Or was there one? Uh, there were. Actually, they were so eager to tell their story. It was it was really it was really a pleasure working with the uh, working with them. They wanted to tell their story. They had a big story to tell, mm. and no one had come and asked them about the story that they were telling. But uh, they had a very they were eager to tell us what they were doing. Very happy to tell us what they were doing. Share it with us. And I think they hoped we would write a book and get it out to everybody else. So, and we're hoping the minority community seeing their own people contributing to this book will help them to just take take it uh, as as uh, good advice not only good advice but also if they read it and focus on some of the, some of the kernels that they'll be motivated yeah they'll be motivated and i think that's the key thing uh motivation is the key thing underlying the whole book if we can figure out how to motivate the children then the kids are going to do well and if there's an academic focus and the kids do well in school and they, they get the, the background in elementary and high school, they'll end up in college, and they'll end up with decent jobs. That's a, that's a whole prayer in this book, is that they'll end up with decent jobs. The uh, title of the book, again, gives a little hint of inspiration. Parents as talent developers. I love that title. Yeah. That's a, that's yeah. a great, uh, great concept just in itself. There are uh, some great reviews have come out on this. Uh, which of them inspired you the most and made you feel like maybe this effort really has some value? Actually, they were all good. The uh, Clarion review uh, was terrific. The uh, Blue Ink review was great. And the Kirkus is a very well-known one. Uh, I'll read you one of the two of the quotes from that. A direct, yes. powerful manual for greater parent involvement and a focused parenting guidebook aimed at Latino and African-American audiences. But the uh, all, all three of them were just terrific. We were stunned to get such positive reviews. I'm an academic, so I'm used to getting uh, all kinds of negative stuff. Every time we hand in an article, you get all kinds of criticisms and people bawling you off and not going in this direction. So to get such positive reviews, we could not find anything negative in all three reviews, which was a surprise to us. Beautiful. Well, parents, uh, if you're out there and listening, as I know you are, get a copy of this book, Parents as Talent Developers. Learn how to be a talent developer. That's a wonderful inspiration in itself. Subtitled, Essential Parenting Tools of Exceptional Parents. Beautifully done, Dr. James Reed Campbell has been my guest and my uh, guest author. Sir, where do we get copies of your book? Just go to Amazon. 
Amazon's the simplest. It's just on the Amazon. You can get it in Amazon. Just go right there. Fabulous. All all priced. And they also can do a search at their local bookseller and and order it in from them if they they request it by name. Parents has talent developers. Uh, Very good. Very good title. It's it's in a lot of libraries, too. The libraries have picked it up. The Kirkus Review ended up with a lot of libraries. My local library has purchased it. Uh, You'll find it in libraries all all over the country. So I want to thank you very much for the interview, for having us on. We uh, we very appreciate this chance to get our message out. Well, let's get it out to the to the world, and this will appear on uh, iTunes and other places. And uh, again, the title: Parents as Talent Developers. Thank you for joining with Dr. Campbell and and sharing your story. Okay, thanks. Thanks again for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book title is Waiting Still, subtitled God's Glance, and joining me from Montreal in Quebec, Canada, is author Marie Stevens. Welcome, Marie, to the program. Well, thank you very much, Jay. It's this, a pleasure to be here. This is a little, un, I won't say unusual, I am Canadian, and uh, religious things are not talked about very much. It's in some regards, which shocked me, the uh, the government of Canada has, has sort of uh, discouraged people from being faith-based or faith motivated in their their living at least that's my observation this book is a faith book it is poetry that has come out of a personal relationship with your understanding of faith and uh, your relationship to god why did you decide uh, to share it well just because of that uh, it is faith-based it is my relationship with my god but also with others with people and i live in an area in particular in Canada, where there is a lack of faith. And so I decided in a general way to approach the subject of God and make it readable for everyone. A beautiful idea. You you obviously, in, in reading your book uh, and reading some of your poetry, you conclude nearly every one of your your pieces with the with the term amen uh, so from an observation standpoint would this also or could this be considered a prayerful interaction it is it is and uh, my life my entire life which is included in the poetry and the prose is a prayer it's my faith based belief in God and so 
I found it natural just to, when writing the poetry and, and giving the short prose, just to end, especially the prose and life circumstance, the lives of others and myself with the prayer word, amen. Beautiful, beautiful. It is, uh, it is inspiring to see that because, again, from uh, what I have observed about my home country, it has become very secular, and it's uh, great to find an author who has uh, has uh, an anchor that is traditional in its in its uh, approach. You have uh, begun this book how long ago, and how long did it take to complete? Well, it's a story of my life, essentially. However, the book itself, I started it last spring, and I just kept going and uh, coming out of um, about the cancer and uh, years of burnout due to a very demanding, although rewarding career, I wrote my first poem, which is the first poem you will see in the book, A New Beginning, Am I Worthy? And so I just seemed to sit down, write that poem, and then everything else just let it out. Uh, to give our listeners uh, an opportunity to I- involve themselves in your poetry, would you read something that is meaningful to you? Yes, I like page 10 because it's kind of the heart of where I'm going with this, this little book. Let me get it for you. And it is called, Did You See? See the light passing, clearing the grounds, rooms, and chambers, properties left behind and meant to be, to be created, constructed, formed by he. In me, little works and wonders, wonders of another yet unseen, unknown to me. Did you ever wonder who it is who sees? Sees the candle lit, lit only by he. Change the bearer of light, light the candle, let all see. May it always be. Amen. Beautiful. The other thing that I have observed about your, your writing is it's not preachy. It's, it's just heartfelt emotion and basically reveals a relationship. Would that be a good way to describe it? Yes, indeed. It's my relationship uh, with our, our God, and it is also uh, these are relationships I've had in the past or present, um, or life uh, circumstance in the, the little stories that come out. Uh, um, not only are we faced with love and joy and happiness, we also have sorrow, and uh, we have to address all of these. And I feel that we do that by way of our God. What, what's the one thing you hope that your readers will take away from this work? Well, it's a work of relationships, it's a work of, of God, it's a work of a life span of time. I hope that they take away from it that we're loved. Not only can we love because God loves us, we are loved, but that we have a God that is approachable, you know, for every person, for every faith, for everyone. You're in a circumstance. My catchphrase I use all the time is, God, please, God, please. And I stop that moment if I'm in a difficult circumstance or turmoil. I ask, and we have to ask, and realize that um, he's there for us, each and every one of us. Encouraging words. You have also mentioned an individual named Jeffrey. Who is Jeffrey, and how does it fit into your story? Well, Jeffrey, which I, I 
notice the spelling is different because it's the mid-Congo. It's the Congo, which is a French uh, province in, in Africa or country. Um, Jeffrey, he's a little boy, delicate child. He's barely three years old, and he's a son. He has an adolescent mother. Uh, life circumstance is not the best, obviously, if you read uh, Mid-Congo. Very loved, though, by, by his mom. And one day he's taken away. And so his mother and his extended family grieve this and turn to God in the circumstance. And where is Jeffrey now? Do you know? Or has uh, what, what, what is the end of that story? Well, I leave it to the reader. I oh, okay. Leave it to he's, this is a fictional character. Okay. Uh, but, you know, as we look at many... Uh, of some of the impoverished uh, nations, there are many children needing our love and gifts and concern. And so Jeffrey is kind of that character that I created for for the book. Very so Jeffrey, obviously, in the in my book, lost his life. Mm. And I made suggestions. It's up to the reader to interpret it as they as they will. Very nicely done. You uh, have completed this in a short period of time, and uh, I'm presuming because you are a creative. Have you written anything else, or is there another book coming in the future? I have a sequel. In the past, when I was younger, I used to write uh, poetry and do some artwork uh, in high school and early university, but I let it go because, I mean, you work, right? Right. You make a living. And so then... Having done this, and I have a lot more poetry, and I'm working on the the, the prose. I have a sequel coming out, uh, two waiting still. Excellent, excellent. What is your underlying hope for this book? What do you want the reader? What do you want to achieve? What I want to achieve is the knowledge of God that people turn to Him. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, I'm in a more secular society, and it's just so easy. Uh, he loves us all. He's created each and every one of us. And we are cre- created in his very image. If you think he doesn't love you, that's a mistake. He does love you, all of us. Men, women, children, whatever your culture, wherever you live in the world, whoever you are, he loves you. Beautifully put. And the title of the book, again, is Waiting Still, God's Glance. A short read of uh, 47 pages or so, but poetry and prose from writer Marie Stevens. Marie, where can my listeners obtain a copy of this and find out more about your future work? Well, it's essentially it's with Author Health, but it's with Amazon. It's with Barnes & Noble. It's with Chapters Indigo for Canada. It's uh, it's just throughout. If you just query Marie Stevens waiting still, you will see all the places you can can find it. Um, it's essentially right now, it's everywhere. Google Books has it. Uh, it's throughout. It's in the United Kingdom. Throughout. All right. Congratulations. Uh, again, we look forward to the next edition of this, the continuation of uh, of this series. Thank you for sharing your story, sharing your faith, and being a uh, an author who is taking a positive step in encouraging others. Thanks again for joining me today. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you, Jay, for, for your confidence and endorsement in me. Thank well, you. 
I will mention also that Marie will be doing book signings throughout North America in the spring of this year, and I think she's going to be in L.A. in the spring of 2018. Look for her under the uh, Author House banner. For Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to the living room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We are saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Key West Interlude, and the author, Lois Richmond, joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Lois. Good morning. How are you? Great to have you with us, Lois. Key West Interlude, it's part of what you call Paulette Marshall Mystery Series. So there's other books that have been written or are being written in this series. Uh, we won't talk about that right now. Let's get right into kind of an overview of Key West Interlude, because this is a, folks, this is a thrilling, fast-paced murder mystery, but it's got an interesting twist about women facing the unexpected. We're not just talking about murder here. We're just talking about good old hard I guess hard, unexpected events in a woman's life, right? That's correct. And what happens where um, Paulette comes about is that she uh, and her husband started out in college, and both of them got through school, and he became a doctor, and she became a psychologist. And uh, they have a happy marriage and were very successful, and they have a big house up on Mulholland Drive in Bel Air, California. So she goes to the club with him, and they, you know, they do all the activities that the, their spoils, uh, have their their hard work has brought to them. And one day he comes home unexpectedly. She has had uh, at school one of those traumatic days. She works at a gang school, and somebody has been stabbed in the back. And she calls her husband, who's in surgery, and says, Oh, honey, I can't wait to see you tonight. Oh, I just need to sit and calm, and we'll have a nice glass of wine, and we'll have some dinner. And But that's all I'm up for. I just need a hug. And he's, uh, 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 you know, he's kind of hesitating. So he gets there and he rings the front door. And of course, she's not. What, what is this all about? She asks him. And uh, when they settle in, he wants a divorce. And he not only wants a divorce, he wants to marry the girl who already has two other children by other boyfriends or husbands. And he wants to raise one of their own. 
and it's a nurse who's 24 years old in his office. Now, they're only in their early 40s, so this is, you know, a big jump. And she says, um, I guess she's pregnant. And he says, well, how do you know? Because we're the only two, blah, blah, blah. And she says, well, I'm just thinking about it and how ordinary to pick someone in your life, trying to begin to dig and have him feel guilt. And then she steps back and she realizes she doesn't know where the checkbooks are. She knows what their social life is, but it's all connected to other people. And what is she going to do? Well, she goes to court and she wins the house, which doesn't always happen. Uh, California, as well as other states, have have an unwritten law known as the best use law. So he should have won the house, but the, it was an old curmudgeon of a judge, and he gave her the house. So she's walking through the house, and she thought, you know what? I am not going to do this. I am going to change my life. I am going to pick up and have an adventure. So she leaves for Key West, and that's basically where the story starts. So in Key West, which, of course, the title of the book is Key West Interlude, there she meets some very interesting people. You have a lot of characters in your book. I certainly do. <laughs> and they're all very unique. They're all very unique. They oh. really are. Um, I'm, I'm such a study of, of human nature, I still unfortunately stare at people. And I see that while mannerisms change somewhat with the difference in the generations, that everybody essentially wants the same thing. They want happiness. They want love. They want to get married. They want all of these other wonderful things that uh, in the 50s they used to call the picket fence in my mother's day. And um, as I, I started, uh, I was a teacher there at Key West High School for a year. Actually, I went to do my Ernest Hemway, Hemingway thing. You know, he had a big house down there. And I wanted to write a book, and I was working on Palm Beach Interlude, which is the next book. Anyway, the school district called me and said, you know, could you take over this class? This girl had been sick, and uh, so on and so forth. And uh, so I thought, okay, well, you know, it's, I'll get to know the people of the town. So it was a real blessing. And what came out of that is basically the book is about three different women. Of course, it's Paulette's uh, travels and how she goes through and deals with breaking away from her husband and then getting into the so-called underground of Key West. It's her friend Kathleen, who's shortly in the book, um, and she has remarried and has her feet on the ground, but she's married to a narcissist, and that's like that ends up being a separate story. But the character towards the end is Ariel. She's the one that's only 18 years old, and she has two major decisions to make in her life. And uh, I guess I'm speaking not only to women who are going through this who are older, but the younger women to say, know your options, but not only that, when you have these choices to make, if you decide to marry someone, always as wonderful and terrific as he can be, always have a bank account of your own. Always have a single friend always have somebody quote unquote on the outside of the married life so that you have uh, a different point of view during some of this uh, life of um, being married because being married uh, is a, a wonderful thing but it it surrounds you and your family so there's not that many people on the outside to give you that kind of advice and Paulette does not come right out and say it but I, you go through her pain and her problems and what you see at the end is gosh 
you know, here's a happy couple, or she thought a happy couple. Now does Paulette know where the money is? She's gotten a nice big house. How is she going to support that house? People don't ask that question. Where is the bank account? Did he write a will? Um, does he have a trust if he's got enough money? Who's going to get the car? You know, how are we going to pay for the college educations? Those are the questions that women should start asking and planning for long, long, long before a divorce happens. And then if a divorce doesn't happen, take him on a cruise. (laughs) Well, before we get into the details of the murders, uh, there's a couple of them in the book, and we'll be talking about the murder of Captain Maxwell. Or was it a murder, I guess, is the big question. Tell us a little bit about you. You have such such an interesting background, and uh, we're Uh. right there in Hollywood (laughs) for a lot of years. Okay. Well, um, uh, I married a man from Miami. I graduated from Lake Worth High School, and I, uh, like I said to you, I'm, I said to my mother, I'm never coming back to Florida. It's so boring. But um, <laughs> anyway, I ended up in Miami meeting a wonderful man, and we had two children very quickly, which weren't planned, but very wonderful children. And I said to him one day, watching the Academy Awards, I said, you know, that's where I'm supposed to be, and that's where we're going. And this lovely man picked up his business and said, well, I can work on the West Coast or the East Coast. He had a heavy manufacturing uh, business, and off we went. And I started out right away before I got to college even and uh, became a West Coast editor and a columnist for the Marvel Magazine uh, company. And they had a handful, maybe six movie magazines out. And I wrote columns and assigned stories and so on. (laughs) And one guy looked at me at one of the lunches we went to and he said, aren't you awfully young? I said, I'm 22. (laughs) (laughs) But I had been reading movie magazines and reading you know that I wanted to get out there not to be an actress but to be a writer to write about people and and get in-depth interviews which is nearly impossible because we seem to know everything about actors and in those days they were protected and I had two fabulous people one at 20th Century Fox who was a retiring lady and she was at uh, her name was Sonia Wolfson and the other one was Freda Dudley Balling and she was myself substitute mother out there so if i had a problem with an interview of anybody uh they would pick up the phone now i thought my life would always be like that (laughs) but that's not true um it it, uh, the field changed once the field changed into salacious material and so on and so forth it was uh, it was time to move on and uh i decided that i hadn't had my education So I went back to school and started from class one until I finished, and I became a teacher, and I got my master's, and I'm a reading teacher, an ESOL teacher, and I did that for many years, and taking my summers to write books and, and so on fascinating life you've lived which has really kind of prepared you to be a writer than what what you're doing right now and I'm sure we're going to hear more from you. Let's talk about, you've already mentioned Ariel, this young lady and she's got, uh, I guess she is connected to this Captain Maxwell Hernandez. He's got a huge fortune and she ends up with some of it, huh? Yes, she sure does. 
Um, uh, Ariel has been has a functioning alcoholic mother who is a nurse, but she depends on Maxwell and his family for her uh, emotional life, for caring about her, for being there for birthdays and holidays and school events. So now she's 18 and she gets pregnant and she's deciding should she get an abortion or not. And uh, uh, so she goes on a trip with him uh, to only discover that this is how he's made his money. At night he hauls drugs up to Isla Mirada, which end up in Miami, get chopped up, and then put on the street. And uh, so anyway, she gets afraid in the middle of the night, and she calls up Jose, her friend, and says, I've got, you know, I've got to get out of here. So he picks her up. And I won't go into all of that part, but basically she is caught in the middle because she's known this man all her life, and what is she going to do about this? So she's a good Catholic, and she does not want to uh, break the vows that she feels she takes as being honest and and straightforward and going to have a good life without uh, doing some of the things other people might do. So she, he had given her an envelope that had $30,000 in it, but she had refused to take it because uh, he put some conditions on there which uh, you know, when you read the book uh, you'll understand. Anyway, so she uh, leaves the hotel and she says, well, I know the combination to his safe. I'm going to go down there and I'm going to take the, the money of the envelope he gave me and I'm going to take Jose and we're just going to have a good time in Miami and then I don't know what I'll do with the rest of it. So we fast forward uh, to her, the choices that she has to make and she goes to Paulette who is her counselor and says, you know, what she's done. And he says, and Paulette says, well, you must go to the police and be honest. Uh, I doubt seriously they'll do much um, to you, but if you return the rest of the money, I'm sure that they will um, uh, take that into consideration. So anyway, then we flash back to what happens to um, to cap- the captain while she's gone. Maxwell Hernandez, um, people ask me, you know, how did you come up with this character, this particular character? Well, uh, when I was in Key West, it's not a big deal for uh, commercial fishermen to go out into the ocean, say if it's a full moon, and just be there with themselves, have a couple of beers, and sit around with a couple of friends and come home. So it was not unusual for Maxwell to take off and take the drugs to Isla Mirada. Nobody would notice it because he works all day, of course, as a commercial fisherman. He's a third-generation conch, and he runs a for-hire service that uh, has only one remaining boat called the Rambling Rose. But in the meantime, he's been putting his money away in the boat and in the banks, and he's forgotten where some of that money is. Uh, so he offers... Paul, uh, he offers um, Ariel this this money, and uh, she refuses, and he puts it back in the box. Okay, so when he leaves and he starts to come back, he has pain in the heart, and so he's he's looking for his medication, and he can't find it, and he starts throwing up all over the place. And the boys, the two boys that are coming back with him, who have have been involved in this uh, transfer of drugs say, well, I don't know what to do with the guy, you know, and uh, can you steer the boat, and blah, 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 and they're trying to figure out what to do, and they throw him overboard. The key is in Maxwell's pocket, so they can't start the boat again, 
and they are drifting, and they're drifting, and it's becoming daylight, and they're drifting towards Bahia, Bahia Honda, which is right outside of Key West, and that's where they're brought in for the murder of Maxwell. And uh, we go through that later on because Ariel's involved, her fingerprints are everywhere, and we have a sharp investigator who uh, will make, uh, eventually they'll make the decision as to how Maxwell actually died. We've been talking to author Lois Richmond, her book Key West Interlude, part of her Paulette Marshall mystery series. Lois, what's the best way to get your book? You can get my book through Author House. You can get it at Amazon.com. You can get it at Barnes and Noble. We want and to th- if people don't have that information, they can go to my website, which is www.loisrichmond.com. Loisrichmond.com. Well, thank you, Lois, mm-hmm. for joining us on Author Talk. Thank you.